0: This is com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.: Welcome. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today I have a special guest, Dr. Stephen Lang, who is a psychologist who works with the correctional health care companies in Lawton, Oklahoma. And uh, he is uh, calling into us from there, and I'm so happy to have uh, Stephen talking with us today. Dr. Lang, how are
1: you? I am very well, Susan. How are you?
0: I am excellent, excellent. Um, I know that you're a graduate of a number of universities. Could you give us a little bit of your background and how you ended up working in the field of addiction and corrections?
1: Yeah, I. Um I was originally trained as a school psychologist and had my doctorate from Fordham University, um, and I kind of wandered out of school psychology and into corrections really very much by accident. I was teaching a uh, community college course, and one of my students said, um, do you know that they're looking for a psychologist at the prison nearby? And that was in, the New-, in New Jersey. And I said, no, and I applied and um, really had no strong interest in corrections at that time. Um, But since then, I've worked in and out of corrections, um, as well as a number of other settings, including um, uh, Pine Ridge Hospital on the Pine Ridge Reservation. I've um, I've worked teaching college courses and graduate school courses. So I've done a little bit of everything. And I've just had really tremendous uh, good luck in my career. And uh, finally, uh, Susan, I worked worked for you um, <laughs> in Pennsylvania. I remember
0: that. And,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah. And that was, that was kind of my accident, too. I, a lot of my career has been lucky accidents. Um, I, I responded to an advertisement and really did not know the journey I was about to take. Uh, uh, working, working in an addiction treatment center uh, inpatient residential treatment uh, was really life changing especially when I discovered that one of my very very close family members and I won't say which, which one to protect her anonymity um, uh, came out as having an addiction and uh, went to residential inpatient treatment herself and I now have uh, two really uh, amazing, wonderful uh, female relatives in recovery. So working in addictions um, was really a god-wink for me because it, it allows me to understand uh, a little bit, as someone who does not have the disease, uh, what they're going through. And since then I've studied and written... About uh, addictions and corrections in various various formats, um, a couple of journal articles, and then also some stuff online.
0: Well, I know this is an area of um, expertise, and it's certainly a topic that we haven't addressed on this show. Though it seems like a duh. Uh, when we think about how many of the patients that we work with are actually have some interface with the criminal justice system, whether they've been in prison, whether they've been in jail, whether they're on probation, whether they're in a diversionary program. Many of them have had contact, and some of them have had actually some very good experiences in terms of being directed towards recovery because of the the consequence um, associated with the legal system. So I know it's a scary thing for a lot of people, but I, I liked the idea of this topic for today because truly, in, in my personal opinion, I think the court systems and the criminal justice system has probably done more to get people into treatment and into recovery than has the medical field, actually, because yeah. of this interface
1: yeah you know it's um individual stories are very different, one from another, and I've had people tell me that I would be dead if I had not gotten locked up and I've heard that from people after incarceration and during incarceration and um, when you look at corrections and addiction not from the standpoint of individual stories but from from the standpoint of systems, um, you get you get a very different uh, different take on it. We have in the United States 2.3 million people incarcerated in jails and prisons. So that's county jails, state prisons, and the federal prison system. And before I start talking anymore, I should tell you tell everyone that I'm speaking as an individual and not for my employer or any any other organization that I might be affiliated with. Thank you. Um,
0: That's important.
1: That really is. That really (laughs) is. Um, But um, we have 2.3 million people incarcerated, and 1.5 million of those 2.3 million have a diagnosable substance use disorder, meaning that they could be diagnosed as either having uh, substance abuse where substance dependence and substance dependence is is kind of equivalent to addiction, and some of those people are locked up um, for possession of drugs, or, and that's about six percent of the incarcerated population. And then there's a much bigger proportion who are locked up for drug related crimes, like uh, thefts, um, in order to obtain drugs or um, or, or driving under the influence, or drug, or offenses that have to do with, with, um, with the use of drugs and how drug, drugs effect, affect the brain. And when I say drugs, I include alcohol, such as domestic violence uh, or fights. So we have a, a large proportion of people, the majority of people who are incarcerated, have some type of substance use disorder only about 10% of them receive treatment from a professional while they are incarcerated. And then uh, besides treatment that's uh, directed by, by, by professionals, um, another you know, number of people uh, have access to self-help groups um, such, as, such as AA or NA. Um, and also work by volunteer volunteer visitors. Um, so we we have uh, a lot of people who are locked up. A lot of those people have um, addiction, but a very small number receive treatment. And there are so many different ways for people to um, to improve. When I say people, I mean we, the people improve this um, and one of the really kind of bad news elements is that there's no news about this, this is, there's is nothing that I'm about to say which has not been written about for the last 10 or 15 years and uh, seeing the same the same ideas keep being put forward without any change is, is distressing um, one of the ideas is that you have to see Criminal justice, when it involves incarceration, is being a continuum from arrest through uh, to release from prison and post-release. And at every stage, there is some opportunity um, to make decision individual decisions about whether someone needs to be incarcerated or whether the public would be better served by. Um, helping this person obtain treatment, and one of the one of the most important um, aspects of corrections to remember is it is not oriented towards the needs of the incarcerated individual. It is a part of public safety. So, what you have to balance is is public safety better served by treating this individual or incarcerating them, knowing that incarceration is not going to necessarily result in any form of treatment. So at arrest, um, you, there can be immediate diversion uh, at the point where someone who is arrested has their first appearance before a, uh, a local judge or magistrate. Um, at uh, pre uh, pretrial the same thing can occur. When people are uh, sentenced Judges can impose sentences um, that are suspended and can uh, can direct people to, um, to enter treatment or have to serve their prison sentence.
0: And, you know, uh, for, for me, from my standpoint, I see this as such a major opportunity for people not only to get involved in treatment at this stage, but uh, also... To have this opportunity to potentially have that sentenced, while it's not um, completely uh, taken away, it's not necessarily available if there's a a criminal background check from an employer. Uh, My understanding is that still law enforcement and military have access to that data, that there was an arrest and that there was a a plea and a diversion, but um, and, and the diversion isn't, our usual sense of diverting drugs in the, <laughs> in the sense that yes. some of the patients I treat, but being diverted from going to prison or to jail and that they have this opportunity at this point to get engaged in treatment, to get engaged in a monitoring system that's pretty strict with real and swift consequences if there's a violation of the rules. But it's a very learning shaping um, opportunity for people. And my experience has been that this has allowed a lot of our young people in particular, our young adults, who might otherwise have had their, their total lives destroyed because now they can't go to college, now they can't get, um, uh, federal grants to help them with school, they may have trouble getting an apartment, they may have trouble getting a job because they have a, a, um, an arrest record and a conviction and, People at that stage of their life don't often even begin to comprehend how difficult this is and how life-changing it's going to be for them for the rest of their lives. So this opportunity is is remarkable, and I am so pleased that more and more of our court systems are at least making this available to, to folks. I wish more of the young people would actually realize the benefit of it. No.
1: yeah you know it is it's important not to enter um the correctional system uh, you know the, the system of incarceration um and to, and to prevent uh it from going that far one of the th- one of the things you need to know about prisons is that every prison in the world has drugs um and uh Prisoners will tell you, and they tell me all the time, and it's it's borne out by the research that drugs are easier to obtain in prison sometimes than they are out on the street. On the
0: street. That is shocking information, and we're going to take a break now. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about the implication of that. So, listeners, Mm -hmm. please think about that while we'll take this quick break.
2: host of the Home Defense Show on America's Web Radio. Join me every week for a full hour of all the best and latest information on how you can get the skills and equipment you need to protect the ones that you love. With all the back and forth in today's politics... It seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on Webradio.com.
3: Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol.
0: Welcome back. This is Susan Blank, and you're listening to Detailing Addiction. I have a guest today, Dr. Stephen Lang, who is a psychologist who currently works in the prison system in Lawton, Oklahoma. I've known Dr. Lang for a number of years. He and I have worked together, and I have found him to be not only a brilliant psychologist, but also a very compassionate individual who has real care and takes a lot of time with the people that he works with. So I know that the folks that you are working with uh, are very lucky to have you. They probably don't see that kind of wisdom as well as uh, compassion very often in in the criminal justice system. So thank you for joining us today.
1: Well, thank you, and thank you for those kind words.
0: (laughs) Oh well, you know you're one of my favorite people, and I'm sorry that we aren't still working together because it was. um, Yeah, I
1: learned a lot from you. (laughs) That will happen again, I, I am sure.
0: I hope so. I do. Um, Right before the break, you were explaining why it is that people don't want to get involved in the prison system or the jail system. And one of the things that was very surprising to me that you said was the ease at which people can actually continue their drug use um, because of the ease of access.
1: Yeah, drugs are very available in prisons and jails. Uh, and it doesn't matter where. It's not just true of one, one state or one county or the federal system or the U.S. system versus the U.K. or Canada or elsewhere. Um, and jails and prisons have a number of different ways in which they are very unhealthy uh, recovery environments. One is the availability of drugs, second is that because drugs have to be smuggled in it is much easier to smuggle something in a small package than a, than a big package so a lot of people progress from cannabis um, to methamphetamine uh, or heroin or cocaine or something else that can be smuggled in a small package um, I hadn't you know, ever thought the-
0: about that but that is really true um if you're yeah. using cannabis that's a, for our listeners who may not understand that that's a large volume of substance to um uh, to make much of a difference for a p- prison population but things like heroin and methamphetamine and cocaine these are um relatively small in size and so you can certainly bring in a lot more uh, for the same amount of volume, a lot more drugs, and right. obviously higher potency, and much more dangerous and highly addictive.
1: Right. You know, cannabis is another word for marijuana. So, uh, I, everyone goes through a pat search, a metal detector, in order to get into a prison, and that's hard to do with with you know a bag of marijuana. But you can conceal, um, you can conceal uh, a significant. Uh, number of doses of a little white powder or a crystal uh, in a body cavity in your mouth under a denture, you know. So there, so that's a lot easier. So, so people sometimes progress from smoking weed to IV use of um, of other drugs. What happens with IV use and why that's preferred in prison is that it doesn't smell. Uh, as much as smoking, uh, smoking the same drug. Um, so if you engage in IV use in a prison, you have to realize that you're not going to have access to syringes very often. So you might have 40 people sharing syringes. They're the same syringe. Uh-oh. <laughs> One in three people who are incarcerated in the U.S as hepatitis C.
0: Wow. And primarily from shearing needles?
1: Yeah, yeah. And also because many of the people who are incarcerated uh, came into the system with hepatitis C uh, because of previous drug, intravenous drug use. Uh Uh-huh. The rate of HIV infection is six times greater among incarcerated individuals than the general population. So you are, prisons and jails are reservoirs of endemic physical health conditions, some of which can be transmitted by drug use.
0: And some of which are life-threatening and potentially life-ending.
1: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and because people who are poor or members of language or racial minorities are underemployed uh... who have substance use disorders or mental illness are overrepresented in prison and because those individuals have uh... health disparities because of access to care because of exposure to illness um, there are a lot of people who are very ill in prison, and it is uh, it, it is hazardous uh, to someone, particularly if they're going to be exposed to, uh, uh, to to someone else's blood or body fluids. Also, prisons require conformity. You have to conform to the rules. You have to wear your uniform. Um, you have to uh, wear the, the, the shoes that you're supposed to wear. You're supposed you have to stand by your bed when it's time to be counted. But then there's also conformity to uh, sta- standards inmates have for each other, and that includes uh, uh, using violence to solve problems. Uh, it involves bartering sex for drugs or food. So. You have a you, you now have an exposure not only to um, illness from uh, bargaining uh, sex for drugs, but you also have uh, experiences that are traumatic. I have patients now who have witnessed uh, knifings by groups of an indivi- of individuals, and um, there, there, there is a PTSD that comes from incarceration from the exposure to to violence and dehumanizing experiences so um, I do believe in incarceration there are people who need to be incarcerated there's no doubt in my mind um, and there are people who I, I hope will never be released that I work with and I still work with them but if there is a way to avoid incarceration through diversion, that is uh, is kind of for me the gold standard, uh, and that involves drug courts and mental health courts, uh, the use of uh, probation with um, with requirements for treatment, and the other end of this, the other end of the uh, the continuum is post release. If you are clean and sober when you're released from from prison or jail, what do you go back to? Are you going back to a a good recovery environment? And um, people who are homeless, who go to shelters, um, this is a quote from an article on this topic. Uh, I was offered drugs 50 times before I even got to the front door of the shelter. Wow. You know? Uh, if I go home to a family where family members are using, um, if I go back to a community where where I'm surrounded by by drugs, um, you know I'm I'm now at risk again. The relapse is extremely common among people released from prison. Uh, for those who leave clean and sober, um, accidental and intentional overdoses are also extremely common. Uh, Intentional overdoses as a way to to complete a suicide and accidental overdoses, because if they are clean and sober when they leave, they've reduced their tolerance to drugs, and if they use amounts that they used before, now they're in danger of overdose. So we also have to look at what, what happens when you leave prison. And one of the things you mentioned was about uh, stigma and employment. So you can lose uh, uh, access to housing, uh, public housing, um, uh, college, uh, financial aid. You can lose access to jobs that require a license, uh, even though you might be very well suited for them otherwise, especially if you're clean and sober. So uh, a, a lot of ob- you know, people who are released from prison are released with a lot of obstacles. And um, what this means is that efforts to reduce the prison population by early release of drug offenders is a great idea as long as it is not a second deinstitutionalization of of people who are very ill. Because back in the 70s, um, we deinstitutionalized people with, with mental illness and didn't replace that with with aftercare, and, and uh, at least not universally. And a lot of those people ended up homeless or now in corrections. So we have to pay attention at the front end before incarceration. And for people who are incarcerated, we really, really have to pay attention to reentry programming. Um, reentry is very complicated uh, for social, family, psychological reasons. It's also very complicated because you can leave prison owing a large debt of court fines and, and court costs um, and probation costs that you have to pay for your own probation sometimes in some jurisdictions. So you may leave uh, not having a driver's license because that was taken away until you pay your, your fines and unable to pay your fines because you can't work without transportation. You know, so... Things get very, very uh, serious once someone becomes incarcerated. So I'm all in favor of incarcerating people if we need to segregate them from society for, to, to advance the public safety, and also as a way of, of punishing people. Uh, it does not work as deterrence. It does not work uh, well as rehabilitation or treatment. And that's kind of my main message.
3: And uh, that, the more that we can do
1: to, dif- to divert people up front, and, the, and the, the better job we do at the end of incarceration with reentry, so we don't have people coming back to the system, um, the better off we are.
0: Wise words. We're going to take another break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about what are some of the options and what is some of the good news about what's happening within the system. Please stay
3: tuned. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on The Doctor's Lounge and hear The Doctor's Conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2.
0: This is America's Web com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back. You're listening to Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and this is America's Web Radio. With me today is Dr. Stephen Lang, who is a psychologist, and he has um, not only worked but written about um, the experience of. The addictions in the correction population, as well as other topics, and this topic today, I think, is a very important one because there's not a big advocacy group out there uh, shouting and begging for um, for rights and for um, improved conditions uh, for this population. And as you outlined, um, Dr. Lang, the 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 best course of action is, of course, to avoid um, uh, being involved in any way. But often, people who have the disease of addiction or who have serious mental illness often find themselves at odds with the legal system. And we know that alcohol and drugs are involved in inmate offenses. 78% of violent crimes involved alcohol and drugs. 83% of property crimes. 77% of uh, public order immigration weapons offenses probation parole violations are associated with drugs and alcohol use so it does seem that um, certainly this is something that needs to be addressed both at the front and throughout the the incarceration and then very important the the back end part of it the um, the discharge planning, if you will, I, I hadn't really thought about it in the detail that you, that you presented that many times not only are these folks traumatized by their experience in prison, they may have heightened their addiction, they may now have contracted um, hepatitis, HIV, they have potentially poor living environments, lack of work opportunity. And ready access and temptations to drugs the minute they leave. so it's um, it's a daunting task.
1: yeah the um, yeah these are all the problems you know associated with with addiction and incarceration so um, I talked a little bit about uh, the front end uh, from the moment of arrest Um uh, different opportunities to divert someone uh, from prison, which is um, you know, preferable if the public safety is well served by doing that. Um, and um, at the end of incarceration, if someone does need to be incarcerated uh, for the public safety, um, reentry programs to, pre- to prevent um, it, uh, someone from progressing further in their illness of addiction, or to prevent someone from relapsing if they have left uh, prison clean and sober, um, and all the different obstacles at the point of reentry. But I want to pose a question. It's rhetor- I mean, it's rhetorical. I'm going to answer my own question. <laughs> Good. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, can you divert a third grader from prison? Now, they're not going to go to... To prison as the third, grader. third graders are, are nine years old, but if you look at if you look at crime and criminal offenses and incarceration as part of a developmental tra- trajectory that starts much much earlier than um, than the moment at which somebody commits a crime under the influence of alcohol or other drugs and is arrested. Uh, One of the things that that really would make a difference, but it won't make a difference today, and that's part of the problem, as you were saying, in getting a constituency uh, to work towards something, is when will the payoff take place? But addiction is a pediatric illness. Yes. And it's one of the great unrecognized pediatric illnesses. Our federal government, which does an amazing job at collecting statistics about uh, how many people use drugs, what drugs they use, where they use drugs, where they live, um, the, the, the federal government has, has just enormous resources devoted towards um, the, the epidemiology, the numbers uh, connected with addiction and the mortality, how many people die. But what they don't do is they don't measure any of those those variables for people under the age of 12 years of age. It is important for people to understand that there are 7-year-olds who are using drugs, there are 8-year-olds who are using drugs, there are 9-year-olds who are using drugs. When I meet with when I meet with my, my my adult patients now, my my inmate patients, and I ask them, "When did you begin to use drugs?" Yeah, they will tell me eight years old, and I'll say, mm. "How did your first use happen?" My mom gave me, and, and I'm not picking on moms, um, except that usually my the inmates that I know. I work with males And usually they have not been raised With two parents Or with or by a father So if There's no representation of women It's not An aspersion on women As, as doing this Because it's something about being a, a woman But Except that they're present Which is the, the good part Right Um My mom gave me my first uh, Taste We got high together Um because there's an intergenerational aspect to addiction. We all understand the intergenerational aspects. But this is happening at very early ages. As a school psychologist, I watched something and didn't know what I was watching, but I knew it was important. What I watched was uh, three girls from the same family in in an elementary school class um, taking their thumbs and putting it up to their nose. Well, they weren't using uh, cocaine in class. But what they were doing was they were taking uh, magic smelly magic markers, uh, a lot of which are no longer available, and putting the magic marker on their nails and then uh, using that as an inhalant during class. And these were little, little girls. Um, if you ask any child, and you have to set it up right, you have to say that, you, you, you don't want to know names. You're not you know, going to call parents. you call the school. But just tell me, do you have friends at school who get high? And if you ask that of a 7- or 8-year-old, chances are the answer is yes, that there's someone there getting high. And then the other piece of that is, and, and you talked about the mental health aspect and the fact that uh, addiction co-occurs with, um, with mental illness. If you before someone has first used uh, drugs, alcohol, or other drugs, they likely um, were easily frustrated, had difficulty falling asleep, could not calm or soothe themselves, and were distractible and and impulsive. And this and these are brains that are crying for uh, surges of. Two types of dopamine, which are uh, neurotransmitters, and GABA, which is also a neurotransmitter, which is more calming. So these these are brains that are asking, "Calm me! Find a way to calm me!" And drugs, uh, depending on the drug, is either a an incredible boost to dopamine, or it's an incredible boost to GABA, or or both. Alcohol. Is very very calming, and one of the ways it's calming is it is uh, it 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 boosts the action of GABA, which is this calming inhibiting brain chemical. So, we, you know, the more attention we pay earlier in this developmental progression, and that go and you can take a, uh, committing the crime and arrest and work backwards. That's all part of prevention. Of incarceration, um, and um, and it's easily done. And I have a friend who's a pediatrician who told me, "I am so lucky I'm a pediatrician because I don't have to deal with addiction." <laughs> and and I, I and he's my friend. He is my friend. And 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 when I when I told him that I I, I could bet him um, that he probably had ten percent. Of his uh, under eighteen population uh, meeting criteria for for dependence on drugs or alcohol or other drugs, he he, he was he was pretty astounded, pretty amazed. But um, the the federal government uh, developed something called SBIRT, which is screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment. That has a pediatric version. which will teach people how to um, ask the questions at very young ages and get meaningful answers. Because what a lot of times I encounter as a patient is, do you use drugs? No. Okay. Are you being beaten at home? Are you safe at home? You know, it's very, very uh, minimal uh, interviewing and not very skillful interviewing.
0: With and the, sometimes I the,
1: get the feeling, especially with very young young practitioners, whether they're, they're medical assistants or nurses or doctors, they're praying really hard that I say no to everything.
0: Well, not only, <laughs> only that, know, they're shaking their head no. You right. don't use drugs, right. do you? you,
1: you right. Uh,
0: you you don't drink, do you? <laughs> and right. Please tell head. me that. Please, yeah. please, please. I have to ask these questions, but please don't give me the answer that's going to scare me. because right. I don't know what to do. And
1: uh, right. And and I will never ask you what social drinking means, <laughs> because you know. Um, you, but but Spert is if you go if you just Google Espert, you will find the federal websites with videos for uh, ER docs, for pediatricians, and you will find it for for school counselors. And trust me, you will not... You might alienate some parents. You will not surprise the children. They will not be surprised to be asked. One thing I wish uh, everyone would do who is living with addiction, either as a family member or someone uh, struggling with active addiction suffering, or people who are in recovery, is if you have kids um, and you go with your kids into the examination room, and at the end of um, at the end of the um, the examination by a doctor, nurse practitioner, physician's assistant, whoever it is, say, "I'm wondering why you didn't ask about drugs and alcohol," and you know. You don't have to be confrontational. Right. You know, you don't have to be in, in their face. But just, say, just saying that, um, I um, I'm, I'm much annoyed uh, one of my kids because she got a, uh, an opioid pain uh, medication prescribed for her after an injury. And when the doctor prescribed, I said, you know what, uh, doctor, uh, you just prescribed a, a, an opioid but um you didn't ask about um, addiction. Good
3: and he just point. looked at me
1: <laughs> kind of kind of blankly and, and, and a little bit frightened uh, as he should <laughs> well, that be was the end, that was the end of the conversation I I'm didn't take sure. it any further until I got into my car and got reamed out by my kid
0: yes we're going to take a break <laughs> now when we come back we're going to talk a little bit more about what is being done and
3: what can be done thanks for listening we'll be right back perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction if not you probably know a family member or friend That needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at com.
0: This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit.
3: This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2.
2: The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's AmericasWebRadio.com,
1: the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
0: Welcome back. I'm Dr. Susan Blank. This is Detailing Addiction on America's Web Radio. I have with me today Dr. Stephen Lang, who is an excellent psychologist, a compassionate man, and a good friend. And we're speaking about addictions in the correctional um, system. Right before um, the break, I think you made a, a couple of very good observations. Um, the first being that this is a childhood brain disease, and you see the aden- antecedents of it well before drugs and alcohol become a part of the picture on a regular basis, although that num- that age is getting younger and younger, as you point out. The other piece is that um Families often don't know that there's a risk, and that, um, and the doctors often, and other healthcare providers don't take the opportunity to ask the questions and to do some education, even though ESPERT, um, as you pointed out, is actually funded, and there are billing codes that most professionals can use to get paid for their time. Uh, there's little to no reason not to do it except for fear and ignorance, I guess. Um, but the, um, the interesting piece is that we as, Um, as listeners, as parents, as family members, as members of community, can do a lot just in opening the discussion. Uh, We're coming up on the holidays now, and I find it very interesting that, and encourage our patients to talk about, what's our family history of major medical diseases? Do we have a family history of breast cancer or prostate cancer or lung cancer? Do we have a family history of addiction or mental illness? Because it's always interesting, I'll ask the young person or I'll ask the the patient and then another family member or parent will come in, oh yes, we've got this and such and this and such. And the young person is sitting there quite surprised that there is this extensive family history that they knew nothing about. Um, And if we're more aware of it as part of our regular screening, then um, prevention, which is hard to measure, but prevention is really possible and that's really the solution long-term to this problem, I think.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The, you know, if you look at, uh, if you look at incarceration as, a, as just a piece of a developmental trajectory, a pathway that begins in childhood, and, you know, you could even say begins uh, at conception because of the, uh, the, the fact that, that addiction is an inherited disease to, to a large extent. You know, that's where the family, the family uh, history comes in. Um, You know, uh, parents who are struggling with addiction um, and who are hopefully in recovery from, who are recovering from addiction, you know, need to share with their kids, "Hey, this is our family has an allergy to alcohol and other drugs. Uh, It is not safe for us." Yes. You do know a hundred different kids who smoke weed, who are doing fine and getting good grades and are on the softball team and are on the football team, but that's probably not going to be anyone in our family because we <laughs> we have a reaction that's 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 different, um, and um, and this gets to the idea of addiction as as an, as a brain disease uh, largely inherited and not and. A question of, of personal morality, because the more shame we attach to addiction, the less people will will discuss it. And then you have um, the elementary school years when a lot of people with addiction begin using, and some of those already meet criteria for addiction. And then you work up to uh, when someone has committed a crime and, become, and then becomes incarcerated. And I, and I talked a lot about how incarceration is uh, is not a a healthy uh, recovery environment and it's an environment which can be very damaging. Uh, So I kind of feel an obligation to to let people know that there are good things happening in prisons as well. Yes,
0: please. I did want to get to what, what are the good things that are happening and how is this changing?
1: Okay. Well, one is that Reentry uh, is is taking uh, uh, you know, t- uh, taking a, a larger role in corrections right now. Um, the state of Oklahoma has some reentry programs, particularly for people with severe and persistent mental illness, that are are operating fantastically, and I'm sure we're not alone. Um, the um, uh, the company that operates uh, facilities uh, p- across the country uh, one of the largest um, private prison companies has started what they call continuum of care just for the purpose of facilitating reentry um, so there is there is awareness um, and uh, I, and and we need to expand that awareness and try to, to build reentry planning uh, into people's incarceration from the first day of incarceration onward, what should you, what should be what should reentry look like? We should be asking people with 15-year sentences when they first enter the prison system at their their entry point at uh, reception um, into the prison system. Um, there are models of treatment that are very well known and empirically supported, you know, supported by research. Uh, a very famous one is the idea of a therapeutic community, which is a housing unit in a prison where everyone is uh, committed to working towards recovery, both the staff and the inmates, where a certain number of people on staff are in recovery them- themselves and have been for, for, for a number of years where the day is very regimented and um, uh, everybody wakes up at the same hour, they go to bed at the same hour, they have work duties during the day, they have individual and group treatment. Um, And when I describe that, it sounds very much like I'm describing inpatient um, uh, treatment for addiction, and and it really is. Absolutely, It's the prison equivalent. Um, It's successful. And it is costly, and so that's when I mentioned about the small percentage of people people who receive treatment. Uh, it is an expense. Uh, the question is, as like you were saying about, it's hard to prove the value, of, the dollar value of prevention, but um, but it, it's an investment um, in in someone that that's pretty significant. But it, but um, if you can prevent. Um, just a few percentage a few percent of people from re-entering prison uh, you don't have to have high, high numbers of success even small numbers make a huge difference to the people who are not victimized by further crime from that individual uh, or those individuals for for the public that doesn't have to pay for their reincarceration for their families you know, so so even modest success is, 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 is really, really important. So therapeutic communities are out there. Access to mental health care is almost universal uh, in prison. Um, the only people in the United States who have a constitutional right to health care, including mental health care, are inmates in prisons. Um, the Supreme Court said that. Uh, so they didn't say it about the rest of us. but Not if you're the rest in prison, of us, huh?
0: Not the rest of us, but
1: not the rest of us. <laughs> but um, but it, there are people who enter prison who have never received dental care, medical care, or mental health care at the level that they receive in prison. So I I I, I wanted to make it clear that that uh, as much as I want people to be di- diverted from prisons, um, there are people trying very very hard to help you or your family members if your family is affected by incarceration. Um, the federal government is extremely um, committed and has been um, for the last 10, 15 years to prison rape prevention. And uh, there's a law called PREA, Prison Rape Elimination Act, uh, that governs all uh, uh Correctional programs and facilities uh, to uh, to prevent and um, sexual exploitation or coercion or assault, and to um, and to help those who do experience it. We're going to I, have to. I'm sorry.
0: I'm sorry. We're going to have to stop now. But thank you for all of the the helpful. And, and the good news. And it's, um, it's encouraging to all of us to see that real change is happening, and you are part of that change. Thank you so much for being our guest today, Dr. Lang, and we'll see you all next week on Detailing Addiction. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.